Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast exploring how to deal effectively with conflict, actual and potential, good and bad. Engaging guests discuss a range of insights, and I cover tips and topics based on my 35-year fascination with conflict and my experience helping people with it. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Chris Kalenda. Chris is a retired Army colonel and the author of Leadership, the Warrior's Art a collection of pieces by thoughtful military leaders. I was so pleased to be put in contact with Chris. His field is not one where I tend to venture, but his extraordinary conflict resolution experience in Afghanistan provides the context for insights in the book and other lessons learned. And they can be effectively applied far beyond the military. Hello, Chris, and thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. I appreciate it. Well, I am really looking forward to this, and I will say a word to regular listeners pretty soon, if you have not already guessed, this is a little different. Chris handles a topic that I don't tend to spend much, if any, time on. I will ask you to employ that open mind that I'm always encouraging us to use and trust that there are going to be some interesting insights from Chris's work and experience and the book that he has written that will have application that may be quite interesting when you look at it from the, oh, wait a minute, that makes sense from military strategy? Hmm, it might work in my life too. So with that bit of a preamble, Chris, tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book, what your background has been. And we'll start with that. Sure. Thanks, Jane. I And thank you for that intro. I am uh, spent 24 and a half years in the Army uh, to include four tours of duty in Afghanistan. The first one was as a task force commander in uh, 2007 and 2008 uh, out in eastern Afghanistan. So led a group of about 800 paratroopers. Uh, out there in Afghanistan, and then came back and was asked to help the Obama administration rewrite their new strategy for Afghanistan. Uh, One of the things that got their attention was we were the only organization, and it wound up the only organization in the 20-year history of the war, to have motivated a large insurgent group to stop fighting and, and then switch sides. So it was a classic case of conflict resolution. And that also got me selected to be the Secretary of Defense's representative in uh, peace talks with the Taliban back in 2011 and 2012. Unfortunately, those did not work out uh, for a variety of reasons. And then I started my own consulting business in 2014, um, helping leaders get better. And I help them get better through uh, building emotional connection, building their capacity, and then, um, and then through applied accountability. So in in terms of the book, when I was at graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, and this is in the mid-90s, looking on the bookshelves, and and there's all sorts of 
of leadership books from the business world, but very, very little actually from the military other than like biography and autobiography. And I thought, gee, I can, you know, we could probably do something about this. I think I can make a contribution <laughs> here. So um, I was teaching at West Point. I was teaching the history department at West Point. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I've got all sorts of people who've not only done leadership for a living, but could write about it. Right. And so I began there asking different faculty members to contribute chapters to, to the book. Um, I organized it around the three ways that, that leaders grow, uh, leaders learn, and, and, and you learn through theory, you learn through history, and then you learn from contemporary experience. And when you combine those three, then you have a, a very rich leadership learning program. Um, and I can talk a bit about more of that in a minute. So the book first came out in 2001. Yes. Last year, I, I asked, you know, it sold like 60,000 copies, you know, lots of people are using it for their, uh, they took it into combat with them. They're using it for their leader development programs. And so I, I told the publisher, you know, uh, we started talking and we're like, well, you know, a lot of things changed since 2001. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And, uh, and, and so let's update the book and let's include some new chapters. I mean, not only did you have, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and other, other uh, military deployments, you also had the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Right. Yeah. The opening of all military specialties. Yes. To uh, yeah. to women. Yeah. And and we thought those were really, really important uh, things to address, as well as the military has been grappling with things like death by suicide, mm. sexual assault. Yep. And so we wanted to update the book to make it even more relevant to leaders in the 2020s and beyond. Well, I can see, obviously, that there are chapters that are new and address those topics. It is a very rich book. It is dense in the best possible way in that there is no fluff here that I have seen. There's just a lot of information from different people, obviously different perspectives, but all sharing something that seems to be based in large part on their personal experience and their dedication to learning. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think the the way that leaders learn, your leadership learning um, is about you've got to have theory, history, and experience. If if you and you got to have all three. Yep. Um, so if you have theory and history, but no practical experience, contemporary experience, then you know, you, you you risk creating ivory tower solutions that mm -hmm. don't work. Right. <laughs> like yes. trying to make breakfast with a chocolate frying pan, yes. which is going to be a mess. If you have theory and contemporary experience, but you don't have any history, then you run the risk of lacking perspective and falling victim to all sorts of fads. I remember some of the fads in the 1990s when I was growing up as a leader, you know, the one minute manager, um, mm -hmm. management by walking around, you know, <laughs> okay. these sort of things. And, you know, we kind of chuckle now. And then if you have um, history and experience, but you don't have the theory, the big ideas, then you're sort of in a tactical hamster wheel or like the person who plays chess one move at a time. So you're mm -hmm. all tactics and no strategy. And if you're up against somebody who thinks strategically, then you're going to wind up losing. So you've got to have all three yeah. uh, in place. And that's why I organized the book that way. I definitely want to talk about the book and the final chapter, which is more your insights than the other pieces that are written by other people with wonderful insights too, but I appreciate yours. Before we get there, I don't like cliffhangers, and I know there are listeners saying, when are we going to hear more about this practical experience that you had 
with insurgents. And I know from what you talk about a bit, this is not necessarily something that everyone would have tried or everyone would have backed as it was tried. Give us some context about that experience. We had deployed to one of the deadliest areas of Afghanistan in, in the summer of 2007. So this is an area called Kunar Nuristan, which is up in the northeast part, bordering on Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And we spent about the first 90 days, I mean, in a lot of big firefights. You know, what we understood about the situation there was that most of the insurgents came from Pakistan. Mm-hmm that the people generally supported us and supported the government and the government was working at, to advance the best interests of the of the population and so if we could find the insurgents crossing the border and interdict them before mm-hmm. they started harassing the population and the government preventing the government from doing its job then we'd be in good shape and we got in a lot of firefights we were winning every firefight but the you know the firefights kept getting bigger and bigger mm-hmm. What is going on here? You know, something just doesn't compute. And then we had our biggest firefight, July 27th of 2007. Two of my paratroopers were killed in action there, uh, Ryan Fritchie and Tom Bostic. And it dawned on me at that as as we looked at that battle and the the aftermath and and um analyzed that, you know, we recognized that every thing that we assumed and thought we knew about that environment was flat wrong. Wow. Yeah. The insurgents were not from Pakistan. They were locals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't stand the government because it was corrupt and predatory. Uh, they didn't want us there. And part of that was civilian casualties that had happened before, before this all started. And 95% of the people that we thought we were helping were actually trying to kill us. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. wow. jarring. This is big. Yes. Yeah, a bit of a jarring, <laughs> you know, recognition. And and so you know, we got the brain trust together. It's like, okay, well, well, how do we make sense of this? And and what do we do about it? And one of the things that we recognized was that you know, most people are fighting in that area, not for ideological reasons. They weren't al-Qaeda loving terrorists, they were fighting for, from their point of view, very practical reasons. And so if we could understand those practical reasons, and there were things like predatory behavior on part of the government, civilian Mm. casualties, corruption, the fear that we were going to tell them, try to tell them how to live their lives and, and, uh, you know, threaten their religion and their homes and things like that. So if we can understand that, understand their point of view. Yes. That would open up pass forward. The way we went about it was if we could ask them their point of view, their concerns and repeat it back to them so well that they would say that's exactly right, then we felt that we had a good basis for for moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, of course we could never fully comprehend somebody else's perspectives. We can't walk a mile in their shoes, so to speak, but we, we can get to the point where we are able to, to understand, uh, see ourselves through Afghan eyes, so to speak, to understand their main interests and goals and, and concerns, and then build some bridges to, 
work cooperatively towards those for common objectives. Yes. So we're going to agree on everything, but we could we could figure out some ways to work together for the common good. That approach was uh, somewhat controversial in 2007. <laughs> I mean, my own organization was, you know, they 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 kind of got it right away and ready to move out. It took a lot, you know, it took a lot of discussion to gain buy-in for that. It took a little bit longer for people outside the organization to, um, you know, to to understand it. Mm-hmm. And and part of that was I just didn't communicate. I didn't communicate as effectively, you know, as I should have. But once we broke through that. Then it became not not only recognized as very effective, but also I was asked to you know, help institutionalize that. Fantastic. Well, this does give wonderful context to the final chapter of your book, which is all about leadership lessons learned in combat. And right off the bat, you discuss the idea of getting the culture right. I hear that, I see that, and I think, that must apply in every context that we insert ourselves into. Tell us about how that came about to you from the combat perspective. Sure. You know, one of the big misnomers is that there's a such thing as military leadership. <laughs> there really isn't. There's no such thing as military leadership. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's leadership. Because at the end of the day, whether you're in the military, whether you're in business, you're in the private sector, the public sector, uh, nonprofits, you're dealing with people. Yes. And and leadership is all about dealing with people. You know, it's it's inspiring people to contribute their best to your team's success. And all three elements, all elements of that definition are are vital. So it's about inspiring, not cheerleading inspiring, but getting people to follow voluntarily. Inspiration is the opposite of coercion. So with a big enough sort of baseball bat, you could probably get people to do something they wouldn't otherwise do but they're doing it under threat of coercion rather than voluntary. So Mm -hmm. uh, inspire people to contribute their best, their best and most authentic selves. People should uh, be able to use their, their natural strengths and superpowers every day. They shouldn't have to hide who they are at work and, and to do so for a, for a broader purpose, which is the organization's success. Mm -hmm. So that's what leadership is all about. We also found throughout history, that leaders and organizations don't change. They don't rise to the occasion, so to speak, in crisis. They don't become different in crisis. You know, your character is revealed in crisis. Your culture is revealed in crisis. Um, it's not so much built there. Mm-hmm. Building it along the way. So characters, Aristotle said, is the sum total of our habits daily choices of right over wrong. It's our our habit. Character is a habit. It's what we do every day, the choice we make every day. And that character is revealed in crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, our character doesn't change just because a crisis happens. Um, we go with what we know. And it's the same way with culture within an organization. The culture that you build in normal times is the culture that you're going to carry with you in crisis, in conflict. And so getting the culture right within your organization is vital and and you want the culture from the you know in the military standpoint i wanted to i wanted a culture in which the expectations that we had that we knew we were going to have to operate with in peacetime so lots of initiative 
decentralization of uh, you know of, of authority, mm-hmm. you know, junior leader initiative, those sorts of things. If if they were going to be vital in combat, then we needed to practice them in peacetime. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and so that's yeah, that's the approach that we took. Get the culture right first, culture right. and what that needs to be, and then identify the standards and expectations that get you there. There are just so many gems here, but I, when I'm thinking about your discussion of character. And the way you behave day to day, I want to read one quick sentence from the book to you because it sings to me. It's so concise. It's so clear. and certainly seems to be so true. We found empathy to be a cold-blooded shortcut to success. Tell us about that. You know, empathy is, is to be able to understand somebody's point of view. You're not adopting that point of view. You're not pitying that point of view. You know, sympathy is pity. Empathy is, is about understanding. It doesn't mean that you agree with somebody else's point of view. Exactly. It doesn't mean that you, you know, think it's right. It just means that you get it, you know, and when you get it to the point where somebody says, yep, that's, that's exactly right. That's how I see it. Um, that gives you the basis for for building bridge. You know, you, you build a lot more. You gain a lot more progress when you build bridges uh, rather than uh, building trenches or 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 building walls. Yes. So empathy was really important, you know, for this conflict resolution effort because we needed to we need to understand their point of view, and once we understood their point of view and what their goals were, I mean, everybody wants what's best for their kids, for instance. Sure. Doesn't matter your politics. Doesn't matter whether you're on this side of the planet or the other side of the planet. Doesn't matter your religion. We all want what's best for our kids. We want our kids to live in safety. We want our families to be safe. Once we understood those sorts of of things and had a common understanding about those sorts of things, then we could engage in a process that built trust and worked towards goals that we both supported. As you're describing it. Of course, this sounds perfectly logical and it's the way we should all behave, but it can be so hard to do. How do you, when you are in a position to shape the future, even the mindsets, the practices of the people who report to you, how do you get this across that this is a good way? This is a better way. Yeah, it's, 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 it's about gaining buy-in. Yeah, one of the mythologies about military leadership is that we could just order people around and they'll do what we say without question. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> um, there are all sorts of organizational behaviors, slow rolling, doing what you want to do and describing it in ways that the boss asked, you know, where people can practice a sort of uh, civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. And and so you've got to gain buy-in, especially when you want change, uh, when when you want to make a, a huge change, and and getting people to buy in to a new direction is one of the things that says whether you're a leader or whether you're just a manager. Mm-hmm. Unless you've done that, you're not really a leader. You might be somebody with a nice diploma on the wall. You might have a corner office. You might have better pay and a fancy title. But until you've had to gain buy-in for a new direction from people who um, are used to doing business differently, sure. yeah, you're not really a leader. So, so this is a big test. And one of the things that 
that we found about gaining buy-in is, is it's a function of three things. You've got to have clarity about the common good. Okay. And the common good is, you know, for an organization are things like your mission and vision, your goals and values, your standards and expectations. So clarity about the common good. Second is enlightened self-interest. Mm. People have to see themselves as better off uh-huh. following this different direction. And then accountability. So okay. consequences for awesome, uh-huh. consequences for, for good, and consequences for awful. Uh-huh. And you've got to have all three in place. If you if you have clarity and you have, you know, people see themselves as better off, you have enlightened self-interest, but there's no accountability, then you're gonna have backsliding. You're always gonna be inconsistent. Mm-hmm. If you have clarity and um, accountability, but people don't see themselves as better off, then you're just going to get in compliance behavior, mm-hmm. right? People are, yeah. Yeah. They're not going to give their discretionary effort. Yeah. And if you have enlightened self-interest and accountability, but there's no clarity, then you run the risk of having fiefdoms mm-hmm. where everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Yeah. So, so we had to get all three in place. And and so that took a lot of, I mean, just discussions about, okay, here's what we're seeing. Okay. Here are here the here are the data points that we think are most important going to each small unit in the, you know, I had seven different remote outposts and and talking with people and and getting their points of view. Um, so they they knew, you know, that their input was, you know, was was vital yes. to this process. Mm-hmm. And then feeding that back to them and then developing this, this approach that said, look, our, our, the most important thing that we're going to do is not chasing insurgents through the mountains, not running around with their hair on fire, chasing people through the mountains, but building relationships and working together, you know, with local governance structures, local councils. Mm -hmm. And then once we did that, creating a system where we're then building trust with those local councils and showing that that they're better off. You know, they believe that they're better off by working sure. together with us yes. from their own point of view was mm-hmm. got us on the track of eventually getting the people on, you know, on our side, not, I mean, on our side, not in the sense that they, they, you know, they, they really wanted Americans to stay there forever, no. Um, no. but that we could work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and that convinced a big insurgent group to stop fighting and switch sides. Fantastic. Well, I always like to hear things that are positive and practical in the perspective of conflict. And you have shared a bunch. There is so much more in the book, and we don't have time to hit it all. But I will say thank you and ask you to share with listeners where they can learn more about your work, where they can find out about the book. And I will, of course, put that information in the show notes. Thank you so much, Jean. I, I really appreciate being on your program. The best way to find out about me and the company is our website, strategicleadersacademy.com. You can, of course, write me an email at chris at strategicleadersacademy.com. The book Leadership the Warrior's Art is available where everywhere great books are sold. <laughs> and um, it and you can also find out about them doing a 1700 mile bicycle ride starting in a couple of weeks to uh, visit the graves of the six paratroopers from a unit who were killed in action back in 2007 and uh, raise, raise funds for a nonprofit I've started called the Saber Six Foundation, uh, which helps my unit's veterans 
you'll thrive. And, and you can learn more about that on the Strategic Leaders Academy website, or if you go to honorride.us, you'll be able to find information about that too. Terrific. Thank you for sharing that information as well. Of course, we'll include that. And what a fantastic tribute to those who served with you in obviously very difficult, but very important circumstances. Again, Chris, thank you very much. It's been really a pleasure talking with you today. It's been an absolute delight visiting with you, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please tell a friend, share it, leave a rating or review. When you spread the word, more people have a chance to enjoy the show. You can also sign up for new weekly episodes on your favorite app. Whatever setting works best for you and is free. You don't need to pay to listen. You can also find the show at CraftingSolutionsToConflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.